is Sunday School for Misfits, hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, a podcast where we, the Misfits, explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of our church experiences and the Christian beliefs and perspectives that we were taught. Welcome and thank you for listening. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Sunday School for Misfits. Today I have a living legend a woman who I have so much admiration for and I'm cheering on so much, the doctor, reverend-to-be, pastor, <laughs> Lisa Ajay. Sis, why are you adding more titles to my name? <laughs> it's like the African the African church, isn't it? Like, they just love just more and more. Just keep yeah. adding in all the, all the titles. We have to give um, you up, man. We have to give you the titles <laughs> that we feel in our spirit that are yet to come. The titles that other people have not yet given, we'll give them. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Love it Thank love you love so it. much for joining us. I want to begin by asking you to introduce yourself. I feel like I've seen you in your Christian aid world. I've seen you in your preaching church world, <laughs> online, in your Sankofa Collective racial justice reconciliation work. Like you were doing so many things. But when, how do you, how do you see yourself? When you think about who is Lisa, what are the things that you think make you you? Yes, I I would say that I am a Ghanaian British young woman who is a friend, a sister, a champion of people, a builder of people who is passionate around justice issues and has a real heart for community. I think if you cut me down to the core, those are the core things about me. Most people who know me will know me as friend or sister um, because I, I love relationship. If, if, I, if I know you, I really know you. If I, if I like you, I really like you. You know, my sister describes me as, as the mum at the side of the football pitch, screaming and cheering you on. I'm that awkward person who will be like, yes, like go for it. And I've just, <laughs> I've just come to accept that about myself. I love seeing people win. I love seeing people do well. And I love, I love community and relationship. And, and I think those, those are core to me and they come out in everything, everything that I do. They, they ooze out, they find their way (laughs) into everything that I do. I love that so much. I really, really do. I feel that that feeling of cheering people and championing people, it's a beautiful trait. And it's something that I think we all benefit from in other people and that we, it's good when we have that in ourselves. I wanted to to have you on the on the Misfits podcast, partly because I know that you're somebody who navigates so many big challenges in your work, and you're somebody who's had to process so many complex things in your faith, especially in your relationship with the church. And for so many of our listeners, all of that is like our lives <laughs> all the time is navigating difficulty yeah. challenges, holding the tensions. So we're going to get into, into so much of that in the course of the conversation today. Lisa, I know you're somebody who, who offers so generously of yourself in, in your storytelling and in your testimony and in your honest communication about what's going wrong in some of our churches and, and what needs to be better. And I think particularly at the start of the year, I think when so many of us are assessing what's happened before and what lies ahead of us, I think this kind of conversation has the potential to really give people a bit of a resource to think through for themselves. What are the the things that they really want to hold on to in the coming year? What are the things they might want to add into their lives and what might they want to rethink and challenge? And I feel like that's going to happen for me as we talk, is I'm going to be listening to you and thinking it through for, for myself as well. But, uh, but before we get into the, the details of that, would you tell the listeners a bit about your faith journey so that they can place you in their minds yeah. as they listen to what you say? So I would say, which is, which is actually really similar in so many different areas of my life, I am a mishmash of so many different things and experiences. I love learning. I don't mind being in a new space. And so my, my sort of church journey is a bit is a bit like that. So I, I grew up in a in a black church, a massive black church in London. It was like 
99.9% black and like 98% Ghanaian. Um, and so it was like a big Ghanaian community. And it was, it was literally just an extension of family. It felt like everybody was your uncle, everyone was your aunt. And, you know, I recently wrote about the fact that it shaped so much of who I am today. You know, your hairdresser was in there, your dentist was at church, your doctor was at church. You know, the person who who came to fix the, the boiler was also at church. It was just it was just everybody, everything you needed was in that. And it, it was just this community and the people who picked me up from school after school, you know, and so I, I, I grew up as a church girl, you know, we were in church all the time, prayer meeting all night, youth services, Sunday reading, you know, I learned public speaking in church. Yeah. Um, so many of us now we do so much. We don't give credit to the fact that we learned how to talk in front of huge crowds of people at church yeah. or to sing, you know, and, and, and all those sorts of things. And so it really was, was amazing. And I think, even in my racial justice journey, it sheltered me from so much because I grew up in a black bubble. And then I hit 18 and I went to university in Guildford. And for those of you who don't know anything about Guildford, Guildford is like the, the whitest of the whitest places that you could go to <laughs> in the United Kingdom. It is probably in like the top five percent like top five wealthiest sort of areas to live in so it's not just white but white and middle class upper class wow. old school money and that comes with all of the pride white supremacy the ideologies all, all of that is is baked is baked in there and it was the first time that i've kind of stepped out of that black bubble and went to I think two two churches there. So one was a very well known, famous church um, that was the, that was there. We'll we'll dig into that a little bit later. I don't want to give everything away at the beginning. And I was there for about two years, and then I I moved into a sort of smaller community church in my final year, and then ended up staying and and building a student ministry, uh, becoming a pastor there. And we were probably like a, a very multi ethnic church in a very white setting. And so the challenges of leading and navigating a church in that context, you've got a massive university nearby, but the actual town itself is not diverse at all. And so you've got all of these things mixing together, clashing together constantly. And so it taught me a lot, it shaped me a lot. And I had a lot of painful experiences, you know, not just in terms of racial justice, but in terms of just church politics, the church world, whether you like it or not, if you've been in church for about two minutes, you probably have a, you have a, you probably have a story uh, <laughs> to tell. Um, and church leadership, you know, it can be quite a difficult place to navigate, especially as, as a young black single woman. And single is, is, is a huge part of that as yeah. well, because the church is so catered towards people who are, who are married. But again, that has its all of that complexity as well. And so, yeah, and then and then moved back to London and moved back to my home church and moved back to that environment and and, and flourishing there. And so, yeah, uh, we can unpack that as, as we go. But that's a little yeah. bit, a little bit about me. There's just so much in even in that story that you told that I want to unpick. And the first thing that you said that I wanted to say amen to was about the protective bubble of growing up in a black church. Yeah. I, I really feel that there's a kind of difference. And I don't know what you think about this for Black people who've grown up in a Black church versus the ones who didn't. And especially in what we say and how we talk about things like ourselves, race and whatever, there's a different tone, I think, when you've grown up in a Black context as a Black child and you've seen what it is to be in a community that's developed and led by and for people like you yes and the kind of confidence that you have I was like you preaching as a young person singing on stage or reading the scripture in front of hundreds of people as a as a you know 12 13 14 year old and the level of confidence that that gives to you as a young person that you just won't get in other spaces for me that is something that is so invaluable and it does make me think wow I have a little niece now, where is she going to grow up that's going to give her that same foundation? Because that doesn't always happen in, in other churches where the emphasis is more on professionalism 
which means that kids and young people don't really have any any space in that kind of context. It's yeah. not about forming the next generation. It's about being really good at what we do. And so it means that lots of groups of people don't get to participate. Yeah, they're, um, they're, they're willed to the back out yeah. of you, you know, yeah. and, and, and I think that we have to celebrate the black church for the way in which it helped form and shape us. And for us as well as black leaders now to think about how do we do that for the next generation? How do we continue to create those spaces? I had Saturday school, you know, I I have a PhD now in biochemistry. I, I, my, my tutors came from the church, yeah. you know, the, the uncles and aunties who on a Saturday morning would come round my house or we would go to the church porter cabin, you know, and remember porter yeah. cabins, yeah. And, you know, and we would have Saturday school. And I, don't, yeah. I don't know if we paid attention, but all of those things were invested into me as as a, a young person who was in the church. Yeah. And what you were talking about in terms of seeing yourself reflected in leadership in authority in in spaces of decision making was normative it was it, i didn't even think about it because yeah. that was the norm yeah. so the idea that a black person couldn't lead is is not is not in my psyche it's not in my it's just not in me you know um and so when people now ask dumb questions about you know whether black people are capable of doing i'm like that don't make no sense you know like because it's not it's not in me it's not in my experience not in my world view and i'm so grateful for that so so grateful yes yes and i think that there's also the challenge for black people who haven't grown up in that kind of space is that they can internalize the messages that they get in a white space that says, even indirectly, black people are not, cannot govern organizations well. So there can be that internalizing of black people yes. can't lead churches well. We don't know how good governance theologically. Our work is questionable. And when you grow up in a space where you see good quality leaders, teachers, chairs, governors, trustees, elders, you don't even actually say you take it for granted so you yeah. don't grow up questioning whether you're capable of doing this I didn't grow up thinking could I be a pastor of a chair I didn't enter my mind to question whether that was a possibility there were other gendered issues that I had to think through but it wasn't because of race why I would not be able to do certain things in my church and that for me was powerful and I and what you said about that transition into spaces that were predominantly white and how that felt for me, resonated because of my first experience of going to a Bible college that was almost entirely white and quite working class in the North. And my first experiences of racism being in that context, not at the University of Birmingham, where that was also very white, but I never experienced any issues there. But it was in Bible college that I first heard racist jokes, Black pastors, big men, you know. That's so not okay. And racist jokes be made about them. Um, like just, just casually, do you know what I mean? Like at the dinner table and kind of there being no space, no one who I could talk to, who was on staff, being kind of finding as we do those safe spaces with each other to talk about what had been said to us at dinner or, you know, in worship the day before. But there wasn't any staff member that I ever felt I could go to and say, this is what the white students are saying in your college. And do you not mm-hmm. realise it's a problem? So for me, it was it was a very strange thing to encounter this, but first to encounter it at all, but also to do to encounter it in a Christian context where you're just not imagining that this is ever going to happen in that kind of space. And so that for me was the beginning of my, the kind of awakening. I loved God and I loved church so much and I had no idea that so much harm was possible, even in the family of God. And so that yeah. began my awakening to the kind of the things we need to be attending to even in the community of the of the so-called saints. <laughs> yeah. No, and and I think, you know, I, I think it's so important for people to hear this because often in often in my in the space that I'm in, speaking to churches and Christians around racial justice issues, people think, oh, let's just preach the gospel, that will solve it. I'm like, no, the people we're talking to have heard the gospel many times. It just hasn't translated into how they see the people around them and so it's not we, we can't just keep using this the, the same the same plaster or medication <laughs> this requires something else this requires surgery to remove something you know before they can hear it well it's a shame that 
sometimes the church is actually the place that's most resistant to the truth around the pursuit of racial justice because it assumes it has no problem it has no issues which makes it even more of a dangerous <laughs> a dangerous yeah. place um, yeah. for people and it isn't like the first step to any recovery is first admitting that you have a problem right so like yes. that is probably that is why i think there is there can be so much reluctance and i i also think it's partly about the kind of gospel that is preached that doesn't actually say anything about how we relate to one another. So, I mean, and this is partly one of the challenges I think of a particular evangelical Pentecostal kind of idea of the gospel that's very individualized. It's very much about, I need to confess my sin against God to God and accept Jesus into my own heart to become a Christian. And that can be all that's communicated in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it doesn't even scratch the surface the holistic understanding of how life made new through Christ is about the redemption of everything about our lives, including yes. our relationships, how we see our neighbours, how we even see our enemies. None of that is really being articulated. It just becomes about, you don't want to go to hell to so say this prayer, and now you're in the club. And it's that yeah. very narrow, overly reduced understanding of what the gospel is, yeah. I think is what leads to some of these problems as well. Yeah. And that, and that the faith that you have now joined did not begin with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. have joined a faith yeah. that was in existence well before you even were even born, yeah. and is not a Western faith. It, it you, you know, and so all of all of those things are you are you are coming into a tapestry that is already being woven into a body yeah. that was already in existence, and and that you are now connected to a people, <laughs> you know, and so it, it's not just my faith, it is our faith. It is not just my salvation, it is our salvation. And this individualism like you're talking about plays itself out in, in, so, in so many ways. And I think that that's why oftentimes the black church provides such a great prophetic voice to the church, to the, to the Western church, to the rest of the UK church. In, in its understanding of the gospel, its understanding of community, its understanding of how we how we live one with another. Um, you know, I had this conversation at, at Bible college recently with um, some of the people in my class around corporate sin, because the word transgression is not just about my personal sin. Mm. It's about sin in a community. It's about acknowledging that sin is not just between me and you, it has ripple effects to a community around me. And we, we talked about the fact that in the Ghanaian culture, if I do something wrong, my dad can go and apologize on my behalf. Mm. In fact, the apology from my dad is better than the apology from me. Wow. And the people in my class, they, they just couldn't wrap their heads around it. They were like, no way, you know, I would never apologize for something my, my son did or my Imagine. sister did. Or, and it's mm. like, no, because the shame is not just to you, your shame is to your family you're deeply connected to the people who are around you. What you do matters. I carry my father's name wherever I go. If I do something wrong, it's not just me, yeah. it's, it's, it reverberates back to him, you of know? Course. And so this, this idea of, of how we've grown up in community shapes also our understanding of sin, our understanding of injustice, our understanding of communal living, our understanding of the gospel as well. And so, it, all of it, all of it is, is huge, huge yeah. for us. Yeah, that's so true. It's making me think like how much, when I when I remember as a kid being conscious of how much I reflected on my parents, <laughs> wherever I went, like you- Everywhere you, know, you went. I go to places now and people look at my face and know my family, like especially yeah. my dad's side. They're like, are you a stone? I'm like, yes, I've never met you before, but they know, so I can't do nothing, not that I wanted to, but- you, you you can know like in Birmingham, Jamaica, this there's a lot of people <laughs> very interconnected. So you know whose child that is that's running around on the street moving mad. And yes. Before you get home, someone's called your nan or your mom so, or your uncle. Yes. And they know that you was up there doing so doing so and so. Your parents that have already been told. <laughs> And they, they shouted at you in the streets and you're going to go home to shout in part two. You're going to go home to, to a beating part two. Like, it's, <laughs> that's the way we grew up. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that stuff shapes you. Yes, it does. But it is, it is so important, that sense of collective responsibility and yeah. also the responsibility for what we tolerate. Yes. As a community. That for me yes. is a really big thing. It's like, 
not just again the kind of individual things I do wrong that then affect other people but as a group what are the things that we've just accepted as the norm that we should stop yes. accepting that we should not yes. tolerate because they're actually doing harm yeah. to each other to other yeah. people yeah and that kind of collective responsibility for what we accept as normal and yeah. what we refuse to challenge is I think something that we don't even scratch the surface of enough because no. we're so obsessed with our individual rights and wrongs yeah but you're somebody who in your work you are you talked about racial justice you're also talking so often when I hear you about climate change reconciliation within the church these are huge things that if you committed your life to one of them would take you your whole life <laughs> do you ever feel and this is something I'm personally interested in is do you feel do you ever feel overwhelmed or at risk of being overwhelmed with all of this that's part mm-hmm. of your work and how do you respond to that the risk that you could be overwhelmed with all of this overwhelmed yes you know I think that if you are engaging with any of these issues, it's very hard not to feel overwhelmed. Uh, you have to switch your emotions off. You have to turn some part of who you are off, and I don't think that's healthy. So if you are seeing the, the reality of the brokenness of our world, there will be plenty of days where you will think, God, what on earth is happening? And is there any hope? Is there any possibility of things turning around? Sometimes that for me is a headache. Some some days I have a headache because I'm like, my head, my head is hurting <laughs> because sometimes the stupidity that I see or, or the nonsense or just the, sometimes I'm just like, I don't, who, who thinks this way? Who, who thinks to plan to put something like this in place? You know, just all of those things, it, it hurts to, to consider that. And so, yeah. And I think, I think because we are people who feel deeply, that feeling of overwhelmed is very real. And I think for me, there are some days I, I, prayer is such a huge part as a, as a person of faith is such a huge part of my world. And for some people, it might be meditation. It might be silence. It might be stillness, but having the ability to talk this through with God and say, Hey, this is, this is what I see. Do you see it too? <laughs> and sometimes it's a cute conversation. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like, where are you? Because people <laughs> are dying here. You know what? This is, this is the impact here is, is, is a real space for me to really process some of what's going on and what's happening. And then to have friends and community of people who who get it, who understand, who you can vent to, that you can talk to, who you can message and say, Am I are you seeing what I'm seeing? Um you because sometimes you have to check that you're okay, that you're yeah. not you're not making it up because yeah. it's so ridiculous. Yeah. And so it's good to have friends who are who are alongside you in that that, that also get it as well. And, and I remember when I, when I was younger, I was probably about 19, 20, and I, I love books. And I remember there's this book by Martin Luther King Jr. I think it's one of his sermons. And it's called, it's called something like Tough Mind, Tender Heart, or Tender Heart, Tough Mind, something like that. But it's his whole entire message is based off, you know, Jesus' words where he encourages us to be as innocent as doves and as wise as serpents. And he says, most people are tender minded and tough hearted. Your, your heart is callous, but and your mind is soft, mm. but actually your, your mind should be critical, should be thinking deeply, should be engaged, but it's about keeping your heart soft. And it's, it's the heart soft bit that I have to spend most of my focus because you will go through things in life that will, will yeah. make you want to shut the door on humanity, on love, on engaging with other people, on friendship, on, on all the things that you believe to be true. And it's that that you have to fight for. You have to fight to keep your heart soft, to keep it tender, to keep it engaged, you know? And and even with the stuff you see, it can be so easy to be like, my, my heart is overwhelmed. I don't want to see anymore. I, I don't want, I, and you want to shut your eyes from it. Um, but to keep your heart soft in that place. And there's there is a place for sometimes taking a break from social media or from the news cycle but how do you not 
turn off your compassion, your empathy, your ability to feel deeply, even though your heart is breaking, allow it to break because that's what pushes you to get up and do something about it, to say enough is enough, to, to find ways to shift things, you know? And so, um, I think for me, that's where a lot of my, my time and my, my fight for resilience is, is, is in keeping this, is keeping my heart soft. He is so hard. I feel like I've been really struggling with this, figuring out how to be in a time like this, right? In the middle of war, in the middle of a genocide happening, right? And this is the same thing I imagine that happens with Black Lives Matter, with a whole lot of things where anybody posts anything, any celebrity posts anything, and you've got 100 people in the comments saying, why aren't you posting about Gaza and Palestine? What's going on? Why aren't you posting about this? And there's just this outcry of, you need to say something. And then there's a feeling that so many people are overwhelmed, right? So many of us are overwhelmed and exhausted by the constant onslaught, right? Of Congo, of Sudan, of just everything yes. that's in the world in general. Yes. And for me, as somebody who's wired to care, somebody whose instinct is to take on too much because I have to think I have to be the big sister of the whole universe, somebody who thinks that I have to be always speaking or responding, that I'm trying to actively disconnect because mm. it's, a, it's for me a practice of letting go of the reins and, and understanding that I cannot fix these things. And at the same time, not wanting that to be read as you don't care about this topic. Something that I was processing yesterday was that we're living in a time where tweeting is considered to be activism. So yeah, it's, it's not a tweet. Yeah. then you're seen as you are in, in making yes. a difference, right? So yeah. then if you don't tweet, then people yeah. jump on you as if you're suddenly pro-war and pro-genocide. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, active, like tweeting does nothing. No. Like, even, even the idea that it raises awareness, it's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. The algorithm does a lot of that work for us or not yeah. for us. So I'm, so I, I'm kind of a little bit sceptical about the expectation that tweeting and writing posts is seen as something that proves that you're for the cause and if you don't do that then you're not and so we there's a there's a lack of grace there's so much going on I think in the silence of the speaking online that I think is mudging the waters and I think trying to find your way is not a simple thing what you've raised is so important that we have to be so careful of the social media mob who will judge your activism based on how loud your posts are, what you're saying, how frequently you're saying it. And most of those social media mobs are never gonna do anything actual, actually for, yeah, exactly. for the actual cause. And we saw this in 2020. And so that's, that's not the goal. If, you, if, you're, if your goal is to be seen to be doing the right thing, you already have an issue. That, that already is, is, a, is a problem. And, it's, and it can't be about that because you'll find that you will then just be running on this social media wheel <laughs> trying to prove that you care about justice. And that's, yeah. that's, not, that's not it. The reality is that so many of these things that we see are so deeply connected. If you are passionate about black lives, you're passionate about racial justice, you're passionate about gender justice, you've also got to be passionate about all the other, do you mean yeah, all the, cause yeah. they're so deeply connected. Yeah. We, we don't pick a corner and stand on it and say, oh, this is, this is, this. And so for me, it, it's, I, I'm passionate about justice. There are things that I feel called to do that I feel like this is my part that I can play and I'm going to do that well. I'm going to focus on that. But it doesn't mean I don't I don't feel deeply about all the other things that are going on. It doesn't mean I don't pray about all the other things that are going on. It doesn't mean that if there is a space to add my voice to a signed letter to encourage people to, to do something about something, I won't do that. But but I, I'm fully aware of where where I'm able to add my hands to. But because all of these issues are so deeply connected, they're all they're all also my issue as well. If you if you get what I mean, and I and I'm we live in we live in a society that loves to dissect everything into neat boxes, and it just it just doesn't work that way in real life. And sometimes the the dissonance, the disconnect, is part is part of the problem, you know. And I see people who never will support racial justice but are all pro-Palestine I'm like no what you're what you're saying doesn't make sense mm. you know <laughs> or you know <laughs> it, it, the maths is not mathsing 
it just it doesn't it doesn't add up like i know you i know you are not fighting for racial justice i know you're resistant to racial justice but here you are posting about palestine i'm like no like what you're saying doesn't add up because because we live in such a disconnected pick a cause pick a corner pick a box and that that doesn't work yeah yeah. The, the, the way systemic injustice works is to oppress absolutely everybody who is not in the supreme category. And so no matter which one you're fighting, they're all, they're all <laughs> outside, 100%. you know? And I feel like this is, I did an episode a couple of episodes ago about womanism. And the reason why I love womanism is because it doesn't play around with this one single issue business. Like it forces us to see the interconnection between... Yes colonialism imperialism racism sexism ableism all of the isms right are interconnected and so it means that when we we are outraged by all of these issues and we are affected by them all and so it means that we can be in solidarity with people who are fighting against the same systems of oppression that we know have historically done damage to us and our people like we get to chip in and say we're standing with you against this because this is this feels all too familiar yes. in terms of the way that the dynamics are working. We know what this feels like historically. That's and it. I think for me, the, the power of the moment has been where people have understood this and they have actually crossed out of their boxes, their sectarian corners and said, you know, we are going to be fighting for the recognition that Palestinian lives matter. And we're going to come out and we're going to say this out loud because the press and everybody wants us to pretend that they can be collateral damage and to see people coming out and saying actually we don't believe that we are we are we are for palestinian lives mattering and we understand how this is connected to racism histories of anti-black racism and colonialism we understand how this the dynamics of how this works and that has been really really interesting i think to see and i for me like I, in my work i'm thinking more and more that the ways to articulating even something like racism is also about showing where the connecting points are to yes. issues that we think are not about race and, and showing how actually if you're living in a body that has some physical difference and you are excluded because of that, you are experiencing a kind of othering in your embodiment that should help you empathise with what anti-black racism feels like. Because people are looking at you and determining what you can and cannot do based on what your body looks like. Yes. And to show the connections. I remember having a student who was a white woman when I taught race in and theology. And I remember her saying, I don't know what it is to be a black person, but I know what it feels like to be to have microaggressions because of gender in a meeting. I know what it feels like to be the only woman in a meeting and have people assume that I'm the one who should make the tea. Yes. And she could draw on her experience to empathize with what I was saying though she knew she could never really get what it was to be black. And when that, I had that moment, I thought that is the key to help people to empathize by showing the connections with, yeah. with other kinds of experience that allow them to understand at a felt visceral level what it is that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and then it means that people are really pursuing justice as opposed to a particular cause yeah. and i find this with even with the conversations around climate justice and climate change is that so many people are about like plastic and recycling but this is a this is a justice issue yeah. it's, it's not just about whether you recycle whether you eat meat or not that there is a there is a broader there's a bigger beast here you know than whether you put the recycling out on a tuesday where the plastic goes or the or the, or the cardboard <laughs> box like i get so fed up with this <laughs> this and, stuff. I, and I don't even want to say, but I heard they just throw it all in landfill anyway. In some cases, honestly, honestly, because I said, God forbid, after all this time I've spent. Yeah, but but then, but 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 then again, it's again, it's a very Western middle class way to approach an issue that doesn't impact you in the same way as it does those who are on the front lines. And when you spend time with African young activists who are in the communities where it hasn't rained or where it's rained too much or they've lost their home they're not talking about plastic mm. they're not <laughs> they're not talking about recycling that's not the conversation they're having 
they're having a conversation around justice. Yeah. And so we've got to shift it back to the core, to the core thing, you yeah. know? And so the more we can connect to these issues, the more we can allow the voices who are on the front lines, you know, I learned this thing in South Africa and, and they say that some amazing South African theologians, and they say that the people are the professors of their own pain. Wow. Which means you don't go tell people Jeez, how their pain is. how their pain feels like. I want that on a t-shirt. Yes, I that's what that we need to do. We put it on a t-shirt. If you're listening to this, don't go put it on a t-shirt and say Not it's exactly. yours. Exactly. <laughs> we're telling our ideas out like this, man. Um, but, but it means that we don't go to communities and say this is how climate change is impacting you. No, they they know they know what that feels like. They know what racism feels like. They know what oppression feels like. They know what climate injustice. They know what gender injustice feels like. They are the tellers of their own stories, and they should be on the front lines yeah. because once they are, the way we tackle this will change. The way we talk about it will change. The narrative we have around it will change, and we will stop going from just this narrow plastic focused you know conversation to really tacking consumerism that's that's what colonialism has sold us the lie of consumerism and the lie of scarcity do you know how much water is on the planet do you know how much land is on the planet do you know how much space we have it sold us this lie of scarcity that there's not enough and you must hoard as much as possible or and you will run out and, and over you. come on and that's what we got to dig down to that's what that's what they that's where they don't want us to go that's where they don't want us to talk about that's where yeah. they don't want us changing is in those yeah. in this in those areas you know and so i i think once we start to to change the narrative to to seeing it as deeply connected, we start to have a much better view of justice, yeah. a much better view of what it means to pursue justice. And you know, I've been thinking about this, and this is probably way off on a tangent, but I've been thinking about how justice language is sometimes used about things that are not justice, and how in realistically, there's not that many people who really want justice. No. Well, I've been thinking no. about this in terms of like decolonizing. <laughs> tell tell it, tell it. See, I do work in decolonizing education, particularly theological education. And I've been thinking about how we use the word for things that are not really decolonizing because they're decolonization, right? Franz Fanon tells us is a violent process. Yes. It's not a process that you can, where you sit around a nice table together and reorganize some budget around some projects. And that's not what decolonizing is. That's not what justice is. And I, it's dawning on me that when we talk about justice, racial justice, environmental justice, whatever we're talking about, when we talk about liberation, this is a fundamental reordering of the values, yes. the objectives, the institutions, everything that we do around alternative values. Yes. So like if, if we, for example, our society depends on consumerism, Economically speaking, we depend upon people buying things and more things than they actually need in order for the economy to go around. If you're talking about challenging consumerism, capitalistic greed, what what then are we left with? Do you know what I mean? Like th this becomes a fundamental restructuring of every single thing. Exactly. And to people, this is not what people we collectively really want. I want to I want to jump and no, shout I mean, hallelujah. And so it's just dawning on me that this isn't actually people are using the language, but that's not actually what we actually really want. No. We want to carry on as much as we can with what is not what we know as normal. And sprinkle. But maybe do a bit of charity here and there. Thank you. And so now that I get that, it's changing my what I'm thinking and doing. Because I'm like, okay, so now I understand what we're really doing here. And and remember the remember that you know Jesus, Jesus to me, Jesus is the ultimate liberator. You know, he says, you know, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he called me to set the captives. Everything was around the liberation of others, both physically, emotionally, mentally, every, every possible way. And think about how much they hated him because he was bringing a new order in. When he talks about the kingdom of God, has come, he's talking about a new world order, a new reframing, you know, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, all, all of it is a reframing, an, an upside down way, shift the way yeah. you think it, turn it all upside down. And I, I, I think for me, if you are pursuing Christ, if you're as a disciple of Jesus, if you're walking with Jesus, if you're a person of faith and it isn't turning your world upside down, if you are not offended 
on a regular basis by what it means to follow Jesus. You're not following Jesus. I spent it on a regular basis. I love that. You're not. You're not. I love um, that. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's really disturbing. And I and I do. And we're getting into some deep waters now. But I honestly feel I've said to someone the other day. I feel like we've really just made the Christian faith some watered down something else. And I don't know how we got it. It costs you nothing. It costs you nothing. And when I think about like, and this is not just me saying this as a theologian, but honestly, my intentions for my life were entirely different. Like I was like, I just want to make money. <laughs> when you grow up and you're in the inner city, you're the oldest of four kids. My ambition was just to make money, whatever it takes. I said, I'm going to go and I'm going to make money and I'm going to make it rain. I don't want no one asking me no questions. <laughs> I was on my way and I was, I was able to do it. I could, I know in my mind, but in an alternative universe, I'm on a six figure salary in the yes. office. And I'm going to some, I have some, a nice flat in the city and I have a nice house in the suburbs in my own alternative universe, yeah, where I get to fulfill what I think I wanted out of life. And I gave it all up. And my greatest joy is actually doing what, I've, what I'm called to do. Of course, God knows my greatest joy is not going to be in accumulating these material things. So I'm really asked to sacrifice nothing really. <laughs> and I think that actually too often we don't actually, we're not prepared for that kind of radical yeah giving up of one's life we'd rather yeah. still be greedy and yes. still accumulate lots of wealth for ourselves no matter the cost yeah and we'd still love to just take take and to consume and consume and at the same time claim to be following this radical yes. palestinian jew who never had anywhere to lay his head and said it's yeah. easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle <laughs> for, a rich, <laughs> for a rich person for God. if that's not a warning about our love of wealth yeah yes then I don't know what is. This is the, the gospel that I don't think we really want to talk about very much. No, 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 no. Which I understand. No. Which, sure is, which, I, which I understand. You know, who, who really wants it? <laughs> who wants this? <laughs> who wants this kind of gospel? You know, because if you really told it and you got up and you said to, said to people, come follow Jesus, your whole entire life is going to be ruined. You might end up with no money. You might end up with people hating you. People are not going to like you for this. You're going to have to give it all away, everything, in order to follow anybody, anybody up, anybody up for it. But it means that the people that say yes are there because they genuinely have a conviction, it, not because exactly. they are just going along with the trend. So exactly. I think that I, I kind of, and I guess time will tell, well, Nick. I think life is so complicated that sooner or later the rubber will hit the road. At least for me in my own life, I feel like I'm very mindful that this shouldn't be so too easy. It shouldn't yes. feel easy. Yeah. And, I, and I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, we should be ex every day crying, suffering, heart No, heart. <laughs> whipping ourselves. <laughs> whipping on, ourselves and more than no, that's not. But I just that's mean not that I should be conscious that there are some things that I have restricted myself from because of my faith. Yeah. There are some things that I've set some boundaries yes. around what I am and I'm going to do and not do yes. because I'm trying to follow a particular way of living in the world yes. that is consistent with the person of Jesus. Yeah. And maybe that, and that's for me to decide. That is what is for me, yes. right? To work out my own salvation yes. with fear and trembling. I have to discern what the boundaries are that I need to set for my own life. Brilliant. But I better expect to have some boundaries. I better expect yes. that I'm going to have to say no to myself about yes. certain things whatever that might be in your journey, if I'm going to do this thing. And that those no's are really also yeses to all, yeah. all kinds of other beautiful possibilities. But it's not a free-for-all, do you know what I mean? And I think that that can work in so many ways. For some of us, that has been, I think that has felt overly oppressive because the way that's been enacted has been enforced in violent ways. And that's why I say it has to be about our own discernment yeah and, and oppressive structure that's yeah shaming us you know it can't be that yeah and and when it when it i think you're so right in that like for so many of us who grew up in church it came about as rules you, you can't do this somebody else told us what our restraints were what the boundaries were you can't do this you can't do that your skirt must be you know ankle ankle length or you're basically a harlot you know like just it's just all of these all of these rules that were put on you you know that harlot word <laughs> is a trigger it triggered Sorry, guys, if you're triggered by that, I apologize. <laughs> but, you know, all of these external rules 
that didn't come from from our us it didn't come from our heart didn't come from our own journey or our own yes and no you know and i think that because people are so afraid that if they didn't put it on us we wouldn't make that decision you know and so it and whenever things come with shame and guilt and fear i have i have question marks because for me you can't use the tools of the enemy in order to produce the things of god but you can't be again. Can't, can't be using shame to produce the go. things of God. Like that's there that's not go. in his, in God's toolbox, you know. And so I, I think I, we've got to change the narrative and allow people to really come into a genuine relationship with God that allows them to then go on their own journey. Around these are some of the things that I don't want to touch. I don't want to be a part of because of my yeah. love. I love that. So we're now talking about church, right? This thing that we have talked about as a really beautiful affirming space and also problematic. <laughs> <laughs> and you fascinate me, yeah, because I, you are like, you've experienced your fair share of nonsense. And I will let That's you a good word, it. nonsense. <laughs> and I will let you share and not share as you feel led, yeah. But yeah. you're also somebody who is at Bible College training yeah. to be a pastor. Yeah. yeah. I need you to help me understand that somebody who <laughs> is running a hundred miles per hour away from anything to do with church leadership. I would love you to tell us how it is that you hold this together, right? Because I feel both, I imagine, and this is what I imagine, you can tell me if I'm wrong, both a love and, a, and an excitement at the possibility of this spiritual community that we call church. Yeah. And one that isn't repeating the harmful patterns that we've experienced or that we've yeah. been familiar with. But also the terror at thinking, or maybe I'm also going to be a problem. Yeah. And maybe I don't have yeah. what it takes to do this and to do yeah. this in a way that isn't also going to be problematic. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult tension. Tell me yeah. a little bit about your own journey with dealing with your own church hurt and coming to the yeah. place of being like, you know what, I'm going to say yes to being part of this. You know, I th- I think tension is the right is the right word, and I and I say this as someone who has experienced so, uh, like where do I even begin with <laughs> with church drama and nonsense? You know, I've been in 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 leadership teams where people have undermined my authority to to my face in public publicly, frequently. You mean in a meeting? You said it'd be great if we did this, and they said no. Nah. No, not just nah, as in like, they have gone over me and changed decisions that I've made. Things that like are within my my right and my, my authority to make decisions on. They have all, all sorts. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> um, I've had people lie about me. I've had people not only accuse me of something, accuse me of gossiping about them, and then they've gone and called all my friends and, and talked about me, all of it. I've had leaders that have been just completely out of line in, in their leadership, in their experience. I've had leaders who've, yeah, called me incompetent, have called me all sorts of things. Have you ever as a single woman in particular had to deal with harassment and just inappropriate behavior boundary issues yes yes and yeah. and i think i think up until up until recently i realized that even the way that i was dressing was starting to change i was starting to wear like baggy clothes and like jeans all the time and just to kind of like make sure that like it wasn't it wasn't me um and then it was, it was actually it was actually my aunties who were like, Lisa, what, why, are you, why are you always in jeans? They're like, you've got great legs. <laughs> What's wrong with you? You know, and, so, and sometimes you just need good family. Who are, I love the aunties. Sometimes you, know. you need good family who are just like, can you stop this nonsense? <laughs> you know? Um, and then you have to ask yourself the questions of like, where is this coming from? Like, why is it all of a sudden I'm, I'm hiding in a, in a certain way? Um, because you're fully aware that like people will make inappropriate passes you mean you're trying to maneuver all of those things it's so Um, hard sis and I hate this for you and I hate it for me recently it wasn't even that recent but I felt so angry after this event so I've met this person twice very briefly we're not friends we don't know each other 
when I say this person hugged and grips me up so tight <laughs> on their chest, and it's in the in front of a lot of people, so I can't make a scene, of course, because this is an important senior person. So I have to be polite, or at least I felt I had to be polite and just remove myself as quickly as possible from this person's over-the-top embrace. And I was livid. I was livid with myself because I was like, why did I allow that? Yeah. I was livid with them for crossing a boundary. Because I was thinking, yeah. you, you, you yes. know... If yeah, you that have was out of line. In your mind that there's no reason for to be hogging me up like that. Yeah. No reason whatsoever. Yeah. I could be yeah. like that at all. Yeah. And you know you did it in such a way that I could not push back and respond because I would have been the problematic one if I had yeah. done. And I hate it. And I don't know whether he knew what he was doing or whether he's so used to violating boundaries that it just happened and he didn't actually think anything of it. But I was just, I was fuming Lisa. Yeah. And again, because often we are in a Christian church context, there are also all of those layers that come on to, on top of it. And, and this is why I think that people really need to do the genuine work, because if what, what we used to have is the men don't hug women rule, you know, and the people just and I think that that's a completely different extreme where you, you can have good, godly, amazing brothers. You can have great friends. I don't have a problem with hugs, but there are some hugs that aren't a hug. It, it feels different. And that's that's the problem. And that, that that's that person who has an, an issue with boundaries, who has an issue with, I don't know, Lassa has an issue with young women or, you know, or whatever it is. And oftentimes it's us as women who internalize so much of that and then walk away judging, judging ourselves of like, is it me? Is it what I'm wearing? Did I give off a vibe? You know, and like all of these questions that you have to, you're asking, you're wrestling with that most people will, will never know or, under, or understand. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard. It's hard work. It's really hard work. And so to the, to, if you're listening and you are a man who, hugs women closely and appropriately stop it god bless and just to and just to be specific because i agree with what you said about we don't want to go to the other extreme 95 percent of my hugs are absolutely fine even 99 percent yeah i don't know like the, the one arm hug if that's what you feel comfortable with yeah fine. i'm good with that yeah. hug. you can hug me properly but you're not squeezing me up. This is a difference. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. There's a yeah. difference. We know what the difference is when you hold on to someone or yeah. you're or you're talking to them and their face is right by your face. It's <laughs> how close you're hugging. We 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 have hopefully enough common sense to know what a light hug is and versus a squeezing me up hug. Yeah. Which is something that I that my girlfriends will give me. Or somebody who I'm dating. Who I want to hug me and hug me off. Otherwise, no, thank you. <laughs> Leave me alone. God bless. Let's stick to a handshake. In fact, let's do a handshake. <laughs> Unless you're going to rub up my hand as well. But <laughs> I thought that would do that. We rubbed up your hand. But you know what? I did think my dad was like, maybe a way to avoid it is to, as soon as you see them approaching, stick your hand out that they know no because they can take your hand and pull you in i'm light look i'm five five i'm about i'm i'm small if a big guy grabs my arm i'm finished i'm literally i'm finished i'm sliding across the floor you know You just have to pray that the Lord convicts their heart. Like and just dodge. I I'm very good at yeah, a, avoid. That comfortable about. Yeah, I'm, avoid. And I see I'm in a place now where I can feel the energy before I even make eye contact with the person. Yeah. And I can sense the movement from the corner yeah. of my eye and I'm already on the other side of the room by the Yeah. yeah. Or and as as I say, ninety nine percent of the time the hogs are fine. But it's that one every now and then. Yeah who wants to hug you up with both hands around you, your shoulders, and squeeze you up and be counting the seconds. Those yeah. are the ones that we're saying, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Hear it loud and clear. Exactly. Stop. <laughs> but tell us about how you, you've come to the point of thinking, you know what, I think that I want to be involved in helping shape church because this is something that mm. I think will feel so far from some people who are like, I don't even want to go. Like, yeah. how did you come to the point of thinking, yeah. I want to be involved with this? And what is it that's in your mind in terms of 
what a healthy community looks like? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is that it's taken me a long time to get here. I was I was part of a student ministry when I was, I think, 21. I'm now 33, so long, long time ago. Um, amazing student ministry again, like lots of drama, lots of stuff that happened. And then I, I ended up pastoring a, a church community. And, and again, I was, I was young. I was, I went through a lot, a lot of, just a lot of scars, um, from that time. And I feel like there's always, the first thing is that there's always been a call of God on my life. You know, this, this awareness that, that God has called me into some kind of ministry or leadership, whether I like it, I can't avoid it. I can't run away. Like Jimmy, I've run for a long time. But it's always been, I've always been aware of it. And I think some of the experiences I had just put me off of just like, I, I don't want to do this. Um, I don't, I want to be as far away from this as, as possible. I'll just help people in my own way and dart around church leadership. And so if you're listening to this and this is you, <laughs> we see you. <laughs> um, and I, and I pray that the Lord arrests your heart. <laughs> um, Arrest. No, no, cause do you know what, do you know what, oftentimes the things that we're running away from are actually the things that not only are we called to, but like you were saying, will bring us deep joy. And it, it's not a promise that it will be easy. It's a promise that actually this will be fulfilling. It's, it's different. Yeah. And so it kind of got to a point where I was like, I'm doing all of this stuff around church leadership and around ministry, knowing that there's a calling on my life. And it just got to a point where it's like, Lisa, why don't you just, why don't you just jump in both feet? And I remember I went to this conference in Germany in, in, in September and I'd been toying with last year, you know, I'm going to finally you know, go to Bible school. I'm going to finally do this. And I still hadn't done it. I still hadn't filled out the application form. I still hadn't done a thing. And I got to this conference and the pastor got on the stage and he was like, there are some of you here where God is calling you into full-time ministry. And my heart, my chest was like, you know, when, you know, when, you know, when they're talking about you and, and I was just there talking to God, I was like, oh, let's not do this now. This is the kind of conversation I have with God, but let's just not do this now. Don't, don't, don't do this. Let's not do this now. And all I heard was like, you can walk forward voluntarily, but you can be taken forward. And my ch my chest was beating even more at this point. And then I was like, Do you know what? I'll I'll go. It's cool. I'll go. I, Selena. I started walking. I think I walked about five steps before I was slain in the spirit. I, when I came back, I said, I said I was gonna go. I started walking. Like that was just mean. Um, but but there is this, and that's why I say it's a tension because you can't escape the fact that you're fully aware that you love serving people and whether you like it or not, despite the pain, despite the experiences you have, despite everything that you've seen, which has been ridiculous, there is still this yearning in you to serve people. And, and, and I'm, I'm fully aware that sometimes that, that challenge is also I don't want to repeat the things that I've experienced, which is why I spend so much of my time on healing, identity, deal with the stuff, like address it, because I, I never want people to experience at my hands what I've experienced at other people's hands. And it, sca it scares me. And I, I, I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago and I was just saying, how, how do people get there? How, how, how do you become a church leader and get to the point where you're actually doing harm to others? And, you know, I remember, I remember him saying to me that it, it's always just such a fine jump, a small jump from I'm serving God and I'm serving God's people to I am the voice of God. And do you mean pr pride always has a very tiny tiny jump that we end up, you know, taking that step into thinking that we are it, we are the, the ultimate authority, we are the ultimate voice. And so much abuse comes out of that, you know? And so, yeah, again, just, just watching, watching my own life and watching my own ways and just praying that, that I don't repeat what I, what I've seen 
I do wonder, now even in my working life as well as in my church life, there's a kind of theory you can learn about how not to how to be a leader, but sometimes you learn so much based on what you've experienced in terms of painful things. Yes. Like when I when I, I had a horrendous manager in my first proper job, that I would never forget how I felt going to work with this woman as my boss. I was yeah. having panic attacks on the yeah. way out the office because of the the dynamics in the office. She was a bully. She was I reckon racist as well. I went to an office with three white women who were all like older than me by at least 15, 20 years. I'd say 20 years. No shade. And um and <laughs> I felt sick going to work. I was yeah. these were all Christian women. I felt I was I was just I was shouted at, treated like nothing in the office. And yeah. I always remember leaving thinking, I never ever want anyone to feel like this. Yeah. Working with me or in any team with me ever. Yeah. And I thought there's no amount of like lectures you could have given me that would have embedded this in me, like that experience. And I feel like church is the same. Like when you experience what it feels like to be talked over, othered, looked past, ignored, sidelined, backbenched, whatever it is, you have that inbuilt, you know what that feels in your body. Yeah. And you are aware of how damaging that can be and how you don't want that to happen through the work and the ministry that you do. And so my hope is that we all take on board that we remember the things that have caused us pain in whatever context, whether, even in relationships, right? That we remember mm-hmm. what caused us pain and we resist when the opportunity comes for us to do the same that we resist. Yeah. Because that is, I think, the only way to break the cycle of harm yeah. that so often can shape our lives. And, 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 to, and to dig into, I love learning history. I love I love going back and looking at like African leaders and dictators and like learning their journey. And like so many of them were like liberators and then became dictators, you know, and just like, just all of those things. And, and it's, and it's also asking those questions of like, what makes people get there? What makes people do that? And watching out for the signs, you know, there's often, there's always signs, you know, of, of when it, when, when people are going down that road um, and when people can't be told no, when they're surrounded by yes, people, when, you know, abuse always has, it always has telling signs. Um, You know, there's a book that I'm I'm reading at the moment. I think I've got it over here. Um, Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse by Dr. Lisa Oakley. Yeah. You know, and, and if, and, and this isn't just for abusive leaders to read everybody like if you are if you're in leadership in any kind like read you know it, yeah. it, look at the signs look at the the traits look at the warning signs and educate yourself so that you know if you if you start to see mm, something's a bit off with me that you're going to go and seek help before you do harm to other people yeah. Yeah. is so important yeah and i think also it's the challenge of people are raised in are formed in particular cultures that are abusive and not realize that they're abusive so i i thought about this hearing two young people that i know talk about their church which is a super domineering very i would consider to be an abusive spiritual context they're young men really enthusiastic with quite a dogmatic younger pastor who's maybe mid-20s no oversight of mature people right so it's a whole toxic mess right now but i said to them he's been raised in a context like this and thought it was normal and so he thinks that this is what good church looks like and so it's, it's understanding that people who have been harmed also harm and yeah. so actually part of the leader's responsibility is to understand what healthy church culture looks like so that they can know the signs as you say of when it's not healthy even in themselves and do the work and it, it takes work it does it does. It takes a lot of work to 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 heal to to relearn to re reimagine to rethink about what leadership looked like um to to rebuild agency to look at your own agency and to to, to look at your voice and have an authentic voice and to regain that because abuse often erodes erodes away your at your at your ability to make decisions for yourself yeah. you know and so and to resist you know to resist somebody else's idea and to think what do i think in this situation all all of those things you you have to do the work at, at retraining yourself to think critically, to be aware, to be present in that. And it takes emotional work as well, you know? And so, so important to do that. 
I feel it's encouraging to for me to hear about your call and your following through with this, with the mind that you have and the experiences you have. It gives me a lot of hope, honestly. Oh, pray for pray for me. I am. I am. Honestly, I am. Is there anything that you might want to share? Anything that you haven't yet said that you'd want to say to the the community of people that listen to mm. me ranting every week, or not ranting, sharing thoughts and <laughs> teaching and, and things like that every week? Who, some of whom have had a lot of trauma in church and yeah. are cultivating a, a spiritual life without being part of a community. Some people are. I think in in my short years on earth, I have seen that that God is just, and sometimes it might take a while, and there are people who are probably listening to this who have experiences that might be similar to mine experiences that might be far more painful um and you're thinking, did God even see that? Was that okay? You know, because it looks like nothing has happened. And I just want to encourage you that God is God is just, and no one no one gets away with. And, and it's it's just this 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 quiet hope that I have from the little that I've seen is that it is dangerous to abuse the people of God. Dangerous, dangerous ground. Because whether it happens tomorrow, whether it happens next year, whether it happens on this side or the other side of eternity, God is just, and it doesn't go unseen. And it always comes back to, come back to the surface, you know, and it always comes up. You know, and so sometimes it might look like people get away with the damage that they are doing to people. And it, I just, I just want to, I don't know who this is for, but I for just me. feel, <laughs> I just, I genuinely just feel to encourage you that God is just. Yeah. And he, and he sees and hears and knows and is present. And those things do not go away unnoticed or unchecked and so in all of that you know in all of the stuff that you do let it be let it be a a a quiet hope that you have that someday (laughs) wrong will be made right i know it's not easy Um, but wrong will be made right thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me sis